Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast on travel, culture, and the creative life. Today's episode brings us to Anchorage, Alaska, where I speak with Caroline Van Hemmert about her new book, The Sun is a Compass, a 4,000-mile journey into the Alaskan wilds. Caroline currently works as a research wildlife biologist at the U.S. Geological Survey Alaska Science Center. She's published articles in scientific journals about birds and other wildlife in the north, and her works have been featured by the New York Times, National Geographic, and more. Without further ado, I bring you Caroline Van Hemmert. Caroline, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks. I'm speaking with Caroline about her new book, The Sun is a Compass, A 4,000-Mile Journey into the Alaskan Wilds. It came out on Tuesday, March 19, I believe, and it's published by Little Brown Spark. I had a chance to uh, read a, an advanced copy, copy of it. It's uh, not a little book. It's about 300 pages, but it's a, it's a good story. And uh, I just want to thank you for coming on to talk to us about it. Yeah, I'm excited. So can you tell us a little bit about your adventure? Sure. So we started um, down in Bellingham, Washington, kind of in the northwest corner of Washington State, and ended in Kotzebue, Alaska, which is a small village on, on northwestern Arctic um, in northwestern Alaska on the shore of the Chukchi Sea. And it was about 4,000 miles uh, between those two locations. And we used a, modes of, uh, a variety of modes of uh, transport from rowboats to skis, to um, pack rafts, which are these little inflatable boats that are um, very versatile and can roll up and put on your back or in your backpack and kind of allows you to be more or less amphibious across the landscape, which is mm. really critical for um, Alaska and places where there are not a lot of roads and bridges and um, even trails for the most part. So we were pretty much all um, off-trail and backcountry travel. And then we also did a lot of um, hiking throughout uh, much of the Arctic and then uh, a little bit of canoeing for different sections as well. So I'd be happy to kind of go through step-by-step step if you want of the different legs of the journey, or we can talk about those as they come up. Oh, well, that sounds wild. Um, you know, at the beginning of the book, there's a, a map of Alaska and I have it open in front of me and you can kind of see visually, you know, where you go from Bellingham all the way up to basically to the sea, to the Arctic Ocean almost, and then kind of head west to Kotzebue. Um, and it, it just looks impressive from from the map. It, it looks pretty wild. Um, um, so thanks for, for talking to us about this. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, though? It seems like a, an adventure like that isn't, uh, isn't necessarily for anyone. Sure, yeah. So I, I grew up in Alaska, so I definitely have a lot of experience up here. And um, I'm a wildlife biologist. I mostly study birds. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my, my job has allowed me to be outside in some um, pretty wild places as well. And uh, my husband, Pat, and I have um, kind of jointly taken on a number of other adventures over the, the course of our time together um, in Alaska and northern Canada primarily. So, yeah, I definitely have an adventure uh, background in adventure and um, backcountry travel. But this was the biggest thing that we had um, ever tackled either together or separately. 
um, and was something that we had dreamed about for, for quite a long time. And leading up to the trip, uh, I was feeling increasingly restless. I had just finished up my PhD in, in biology that ended up um, having me spend a lot more time in the lab um, and studying birds in cages than actually out in the field. And so I was mm-hmm. pretty ready for a, a change from that. Um, and it seemed like a good opportunity to leave everything else behind and, and get out into the wild for, for a bit. Right. That's one of the uh, running tensions throughout the book. Uh, you talk about your your PhD and your life in the lab, and you refer to it as like a, a prison sentence uh, at a few points uh, th- throughout it. Was it just that you were kind of enclosed in, in, in basically indoors and it was taking the, uh, I don't know, the interest that you had in biology and the natural world away? Was it just kind of neutering that, so to speak? Yeah, I guess I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a prison sentence. Parts of it were really fascinating, and I, mm-hmm. I was um, pursuing a, a question that I was passionately interested in. I think just because the fact was that we still had a lot of basic knowledge we didn't um, hadn't acquired yet about this problem, which is uh, based on these really grotesque beak deformities in mm-hmm. black-capped chickadees and other resident Alaskan birds. And so, the you know, I started, I thought my interest was really driven by kind of the connection between wildlife and our environment and, you know, even sort of toxicology and what sort of contaminants could be influencing these deformities. And when it came down to it, we just weren't at the point where I could even ask those questions yet. And so I ended up spending a lot of time looking through a microscope and studying um, Mm -hmm. beak growth of birds in cages. And, uh, you know, all of those things kind of in their own right are, are interesting. But the fact was that I was spending less and less time outdoors and was really kind of being, um, you know, pigeonholed, I guess, or forced into uh, much more of a laboratory-based approach to science. And, and I had started to feel increasingly disconnected from the natural world. So I think more than anything, it was, it was kind of a moment where I needed to reconsider, you know, what was important to me and what had drawn me to, to biology and to science in the first place. Right. And we won't, we won't spoil the book, but uh, you, you basically set off on, a, on this adventure at a kind of crossroads, so to speak, and you have uh, several opportunities uh, that you have uh, potentially um, confronting you and you set off on this adventure not knowing where you'll, you'll, you, you will end up at the end of it. So um, that's a running tension throughout the book that I think holds much of it together. And it's one that I can kind of understand, you know, having gone through uh, – uh, graduate program myself. Yeah, there's a certain amount of rigor that's just kind of required to do something like that. And, you know, there's a there's a point at which it's, yeah, it's time for a break. And, um, yeah, so the world is a, is a large place. And sometimes mm-hmm. in a graduate degree of, of any sort, we can end up feeling like it, it becomes very confined for a period of time. Right. You'd mentioned early on in the book at, at some point that um, you really didn't appreciate the outdoors as a child? You were more of a a book nerd. And I guess, when did you realize that you loved the outdoors? Yeah, so my my family um, spent a lot of time outdoors. And sort of by default, I was, you know, got to do a lot of things, um, skiing and hiking and camping. And I was always kind of an unwilling participant, um, probably in part just because I was very headstrong. And it wasn't my my idea (laughs) to begin with. But um, also, I, I was a total um, bookworm, and so I was much more content kind of taking my adventures from the comfort of, of a um, couch or, you know, somebody's living room. Um, and so I guess it was 
really, it took me quite a long time to come back to some of those um, early inspirations or influences. And I would say by college, it was pretty clear to me that I, I loved the outdoors. And I think sometimes leaving a place makes you appreciate it even more. And that was true for me when I mm-hmm. uh, left Alaska to go to school elsewhere and realized just how much I, I you know, being up here and, and being outside was a part of who I was. And so gradually I sort of um, found myself being drawn back to those experiences that I'd had as a kid and um, actually embracing them this time. So, Right. But your bookish side never really left you, right? Um, it kept on drawing you back. And at some point in, 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 the, in the book, you referred to getting an MFA in creative writing, I believe, or maybe creative nonfiction. Um, but you don't talk too much about that in the book. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that episode in your life. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I um, was after I'd finished my undergrad, obviously, and I was working as mm-hmm. a field biologist kind of seasonally um, up here in Alaska. And then I met um, the person who's now my husband, Pat, and he's a pretty major character in the book, as you can imagine. And um, he was at Western Washington University down in Bellingham. He was actually a roommate of my younger sister at the time. And, and I had heard all these intriguing stories about this guy who had come out straight out of high school and um, gone up to Alaska from New York and built a cabin way in, deep in the Alaskan interior. And so I was really intrigued by this person. And um, yeah, so ended we ended up kind of starting this long distance correspondence and relationship. And that turned into something lasting. Um, obviously we're still together now. And, um, I was considering pursuing a a graduate degree in biology at the time, but it seemed like a perfect opportunity to do something different. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to school for writing, um, when I was in Bellingham and and did it, it was actually an MA program at the time and shortly after transitioned to MFA. Um, but it, yeah, it was, I guess at the time it felt a bit like I was a biologist dabbling in something else, Mm -hmm. Um, but I've always been really drawn to to writing and to the humanities in general. My undergraduate degrees are in biology and also in gender studies. So I kind of always transitioned between those, those two worlds a little bit, but um, the the writing program that I, that I went to had a a focus in creative nonfiction, which was a really good fit for me. So that was my first kind of foray into, I actually hadn't taken a, a English class in college because I, had done stuff as an, as a high schooler um, and sort of tested out of some of those things. But ironically, I came back to it um, as a graduate student and it gave me an opportunity to see that world firsthand, uh, which was really great experience. But then shortly after finishing that, I kind of went back to, to biology and science and um, didn't do a whole lot of writing for a number of years until coming back to this project. Mm. I'm sure it helped uh, the foundation on your various articles and and the project, as you as you mentioned. Um, so literature never really, or reading and writing never really escaped you, even in the outdoors. Do you remember? Um, I, I don't know. As a child, perhaps any of your early literary influences. Do you recall being drawn to any particular writers or poets or anything? Well, as a kid, I would read anything and everything. Um, I just kind of went through the house devouring, you know, whatever I could find from magazines that my parents had to books about glaciology to, um, you know, novels, nonfiction or uh, uh, mystery books, just about anything that I could I could find. I was really eager to read. So I would say initially I was a, a very equal opportunity reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as I got older, um, I was definitely drawn to uh, stories about about animals and about veterinarians. I remember really loving James Harriet as a kid. Um, 
and then as a as a young adult, especially as I was starting to get more interested in in biology and um, field work and the natural world, I um, some of my first influences were very classic in that field: Barry Lopez, Terry Tempest Williams, um, and other writers who kind of focus on the natural world, but also in the context of um, identity and place and mm. um, our relationship, I guess, to each other, but how that's reflected in, in the natural world. I, I couldn't um, get out of my head a, um, a poem by William Wordsworth. It's called The Tables Turned. Um, have you read that one? Do you recall? I haven't done a while, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a poem. It's a short poem that talks about birds, right? And it talks about kind of abandoning books and letting nature be your teacher. And, you know, it seems like that, you know, if you're writing in the 19th century, you would align pretty nicely with, with the romantics, at least in, in, in England. Um, it's a great little poem. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Great, yeah. What yeah, about, I think so. And oh, go ahead. No, sorry. I was just going to ask you if you um, if you read any of the American nineteenth uh, century writers, the naturalists from that time. I did some. You know, to be perfectly honest, I I tended to read more contemporary, um, especially when I was doing a lot of writing in the creative writing program. Um, and then sort of through that found my way back into maybe more of the, the classic American literature. And, um, yeah, so I would say that, you know, my influences have been pretty diverse, um, mm. over the years, but, um, I do tend to kind of gravitate toward stories about place, but also stories about people. Mm. Um, and I think that maybe it was natural for me to, to focus on memoir as, um, you know, starting, starting point for my, for my own writing. And so um, I, I take it your your new position um, is satisfying in that you have the the space to go outdoors and do and scratch that itch, but also enabling you the time to scratch your creative itch with, with writing. Yeah, I've been fortunate in my current position to kind of have the the space and the time um, to do things besides science. Um, I still do really love my work as a biologist and, you know, some of it's spent outdoors and some of it's not. Um, and that's mm-hmm. fine as long as I have kind of the time and, um, ability to, um, as you say, scratch that itch elsewhere. And I also have two young children now, so they kind of by default get me outside whether I you know, <laughs> want to or not. So we spend a lot of time as a family outdoors. And actually this year I've been um, fortunate enough to more or less take a sabbatical. I'm still working remotely and um, part-time, but we did a lot of traveling and sailed up the inside passage this last summer with our family and have been living remotely for the most part. Um, so yeah, so lots of different ways, I guess, to, to kind of have that need met. And then the writing tends to happen um, whenever I you know, can squeeze in a little bit of time early in the morning or late at night or mm-hmm. um, anything kind of between the rest of, of life. I remember before having kids thinking that I always needed this really perfect kind of writing environment. I had to have a really good night's sleep and I, you know, wanted everything to all the stars to align so that I had the right creative um, kind of juju as I was getting set up. <laughs> and then I quickly realized after having kids in my life that if I had 20 minutes and a pair of earplugs, I could, I could make it happen. <laughs> so. Yeah. One of the the little boys makes an appearance. Um, well, I don't know if that's giving anything away, but. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. <laughs> in, at the, in, in the book, which is, uh, it's nice. Oh, you said you were sailing the inside passage, passages. Um, I'm geographically unaware sure, of not, where yeah, this not is. A where is familiar that? term for everybody. <laughs> so it, it's that, that kind of mostly in, inland waterway that stretches from um, Puget Sound and kind of Washington State area up along the coast of 
British Columbia and Southeast Alaska and ends more or less where we did on our, the rowing portion of our trip. So up in Lynn Canal, Skagway and um, Haynes and probably for a lot of listeners, Glacier Bay is a more familiar landmark, but it, it's that, okay. you know, kind of classic route that um, some people take by cruise ship, other people kayak or sail or, or different modes of, of getting from one place to another, obviously. But yeah, we, we took a sailboat, um, which seemed like the easiest way to move all of us mm. <laughs> kind of jointly um, and, you know, got to some really amazing wild places. It's mostly a pretty remote coastline. Um, and uh, yeah, it was an, an opportunity for all of us to get to experience some of kind of the wilderness and um, also be on the go at the same time. Yeah. And that's kind of like in the general vicinity of Juneau then? or That's where, yeah, kind of where it ends okay. more or less. I mean, a little bit farther north than that, but yep. Yep. That's okay. Southeast Alaska. Wow. So your, your journey, um, took you how long, about six months, uh, from yeah. beginning to end? That's right. About six months. Yep. So. Yeah. And you encountered bears and wolves and lots of birds and foul weather and mosquitoes and all, all the, all the bad things associated with food insecurity. So I guess what is, what was the most in hindsight, what was the most challenging bit of that trip for you? I think what was the most challenging section was not necessarily what was most challenging physically, but it was most challenging mentally. And um, that was the Mackenzie Delta region. So we had come, we had rode up the inside passage. We crossed the coast mountains by ski and pack raft, got into the headwaters of the Yukon River, which probably a lot of people have heard of, mm-hmm. and then paddled um, up to a, a town called Dawson City. And from there, we kind of headed north and east by foot and pack raft up to um, heading up toward the Arctic coast. And we had sort of a logistical, I guess, dilemma when we were planning out the, the trip that we wanted to get from this Wind River drainage, um, which was a, a place that we had done a, a really formative trip for us um, 10 years earlier, at, all the way to the Arctic coast. And there was a, a big river that flows north, and it seems like, you know, on paper, it looks perfect, the Mackenzie River. The problem, of course, was um, that the delta is not a um, a typical river as we think about it. It, it does flow, um, but the farther north you get, the the more braided these channels get, and they sort of fan out into this really incredible um, feature that's actually visible, you know, all the way from from space. And um, it's an area where mosquitoes are unlike anywhere else I've I've ever seen in my life. The mud is um, mm. kind of unthinkable. And what we found is that paddling kind of downriver at times actually entailed paddling upriver because winds off of the Arctic coast can change the level of the river by as much as five feet. So on the Arctic coast, or at least in the Beaufort Sea region, there are very, very small tides, unlike the Pacific coast where you, know, you can have 12 or even you know 16 or 20 foot tidal range up in the Arctic coast, it's very small, like a foot or, or less, but it's really the wind that has the biggest effect um, in that area. And the kind of cumulative effect on the river is that it can actually sort of push the water so much that the channels are flowing the wrong direction. So we're in there um, in our little pack rafts, which are amazing little crafts, except for when you have a headwind, which we did almost constantly. Mm. And the bugs were you know, beyond anything I can possibly <laughs> describe really because they were they were just horrific. They kind of defined every single thing we did throughout the day um, to the point that we stopped cooking meals because it required we had to be outside and we would just eat, you know, whatever kind of dried food we had, add a little bit of water to it. We'd drink 
dehydrated or instant coffee with cold water. Um, it just wasn't worth being outside any more right. than we had to in the bugs. And, um, yeah, so that was, I think that was the, the real low point on the journey in terms of our mental states, mm-hmm. um, in part because it was the first time we really questioned why are we doing this, this, this thing, you know, and it's amazing how, uh, an objective that <clears throat> at face value seems very unreasonable can seem so reasonable in your mind when you're really committed to it. Um, but this was a time where all of that commitment sort of went out the window and we were wondering, you know, why we were spending our lives doing this ridiculous thing. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, that, I would say that was the most challenging part mentally of the trip. Um, there were other parts physically that were a lot more challenging. Um, even our crossing of the coast mountain range or kind of a lot of hazards to deal with in terms of um, avalanches and, mm-hmm. uh, ice falls and a variety of other kind of mountain hazards to negotiate. And, um, yeah, rowing was quite physically demanding. So there's, yeah, different, different pieces that were challenging in different ways, but but the the clear low point for me on the trip was the McKenzie Delta. I guess it goes without saying that this was something that you did in the warmer months, right? And in the warmer months, plenty of sunshine, lots of, uh, warmth for the insects to start to breed and, and reproduce. So, up there how, how many hours of sun was that most of the day uh yeah all the way up in the arctic it's 24 hour light but yeah we so we were we were sort of in the warm months but you know our version of of the warm months is a lot shorter than probably most people are accustomed to so we started in in march down mm-hmm. in bellingham and that's still very much spring and you know as you move north still kind of winter. early or late winter um so we were dealing with a lot of, of spring storms and and pretty nasty weather on that portion. And then by the time we got to the Arctic, you know, by, by August and early September, um, freeze up is starting to happen and we got a lot of snow in that portion of it. So we wow. kind of pushed both ends of the season, um, as much as we could and, you know, knew that to cover that distance would be difficult, um, even with leaving as early as we possibly could. But well, you you begin the book with a, a difficult uh, situation crossing a swift moving river. Was that in this in this area? I'm, I'm, I don't remember geographically where that occurred. Yeah, that was in the eastern Brooks Range. So the Brooks Range Mountains are kind of the northernmost mountain range. Um, so we had traveled, yeah, kind of west along the Arctic coast. We okay. were you know well into Canada when we got to the coast, and then traveled across the the border with Alaska to a community called Kektovik and then headed down into the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And then it was on the south end of that that the, the river crossing occurred. So we're about three quarters of the way um, through the trip, mileage-wise anyway, and just starting our traverse of the, the Brooks Range Mountains. Mm. Would you do it again? The trip or that river crossing? The, the entire trip. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure that I would have an opportunity to do the exact you know same trip mm-hmm. and um, everything else. But yeah, yeah I have zero regrets about doing it. It was a really phenomenal experience. And I think like, you know, most experiences in life, when you take that kind of take the plunge to try something different, it's, it's usually well worth the the effort. Hmm. You know, I was, I was, I was Googling around and I was, I was searching for um, a bear video, but I couldn't find one. (laughs) Will that bear video ever surface? Oh, of our predatory bear (laughs) encounter? Yes. (laughs) Well, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> come to a presentation. No, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I have presented it a number of times, and it is it's, it's fairly dramatic footage, um, as much because of the context as anything else. But could you explain yeah, that? Point, I, I, 
Sure, I'd be happy to. So we were, um, this was when we were further west in the Brooks Range. So um, we were getting fairly close to our, you know, endpoint in, in Kotzebue. And things had been going pretty well um, after swimming the river. That's the opening of the book, as you mentioned. Uh, we were kind of getting, I guess, getting our rhythm um, in the mountains and starting to move pretty efficiently. And it's a really, really stunning, vast landscape. And um, we were felt like we were kind of moving like animals do across the landscape. And um, then the rain started to to come Mm -hmm. and it's, it's technically a polar desert up there. So rainfall doesn't usually, you know, happen in great volume, but that particular time of of the year and that year we had about three weeks um, straight of, of rain and the whole landscape was flooded. The river crossings were really difficult. The, um, just the ground to walk on was really difficult. We were cooking exclusively with fire at that point. And so trying to get a fire started, you know, with pouring rain, as you can imagine, was challenging. And um, we had kind of gotten through this really difficult section and finally the clouds broke and we were starting to see a little bit of sunshine and we were coming down out of this really brushy section and I heard something kind of rustling in in the bushes behind me and initially thought it was a a bird and then turned and I saw this this, um, black bear, which was kind of a cinnamon color, looking straight at me and it had obviously been been stalking us and it was coming from behind and you know I've spent a lot of time in bear country and had a lot of encounters with bears and it was immediately obvious to me that that bear had very different intentions than any other bear I had met and so kind of immediately um, Pat and I got ourselves in a position where we could see the bear and not let it out of our out of our sight mm-hmm. and sure enough it circled back around you know once twice three times and approached us to within several feet and um Really quickly in our minds, I think there was a shift from kind of normal bear savvy behavior to this bear is is predatory and we have got to change its mind um, as far as its intentions of of eating us. And so it turned into this almost 30 minute long standoff with the bear kind of approaching us. We actually sprayed it with bear spray because everything was happening more or less in slow motion. I think the bear was able to see that that pepper cloud that comes out of the bear spray canister mm-hmm. and kind of duck its head, and so it didn't get it fully in the face. And we threw our poles at it. We were screaming at it, you know, just trying to kind of change its its perception of who the aggressor was in that situation. And, um, you know, it went on and on and on. And eventually, you know, I guess we convinced it to leave, but it was a really terrifying experience and the first that I've ever had after, you know, seeing hundreds of, of bears over my life and certainly dozens on that trip. Um, and it but was all recorded on video. Yeah. Yep. More or less. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's all recorded. Um, and you know, it's, I guess it, it's almost scarier because so much of what you see is, is kind of, um, the ground and things moving quickly and get these flashes of the bear coming in and out of the, out of the, the frame of the camera and us yelling. <laughs> um, so yeah. At some point, I might I might post it. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would love to see it. Um, you know, be frightened. It seems you know those kinds of experiences, terrifying. Um, but also not not just with the aggressive animals. It must have been with with the storms and uh, you know just the the vistas of the mountains. You know, it's, it's very kind of sublime, uh, terrifying um, e- experience altogether. I'm sure there were very dull moments along the way, but also very kind of peak moments as as you just described uh, that give you the the whole uh, range of experiences there. Certainly, yeah. And and it was long enough that it, you know, more or less became a lifestyle. 
um, that it wasn't just a blip away from our regular lives that we were doing it, you know, kind of day in and day out, but it, it, it felt like life, <laughs> like yeah. regular life. But of course it wasn't six months, every day was yeah. different and six months. Yeah. And we never really knew what, you know, what to expect, um, the next day. And I think part of that, that mental shift for me was this kind of idea of being more okay with embracing the uncertainty that was mm-hmm. inherent in living that way. And that isn't always something that's easy for me to do in my, my day-to-day life. So, um, kind of appreciating just that you can't predict what's going to happen the next day or around the next bend and, and trying to make peace with that. Mm-hmm. But you try to prepare for all of the, the possible situations. Are you, do you recall how heavy your, your packs were or how much stuff you had to lug around? Yeah, it varied widely um, across the different legs of the journey. So when mm-hmm. we were hiking up and over the coast mountains, we had pack raft skis and about two weeks worth of food and mountaineering equipment on our backs. And so those packs were probably 60 or 70 pounds um, at least. And then at other times, you know, when we had the the reason that we swam that that river that's in the opening of the book is because we had decided to mail our boats ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a section of the range that we could, we thought we could mostly uh, avoid big river crossings because we're staying on the crest of the mountain range. Um, And obviously had to deal with that one river that almost (laughs) turned disastrous. Um, but at that time, you know, that was probably the lightest section of the, of the trip for us. And without any food, we were probably down to low 20s in our packs. And then, of course, you add two weeks of food and things get heavier in a hurry, but we would gradually get lighter throughout the course of each leg. So we were using that the Postal Service primarily for our resupplies and our distances between um, resupply locations were dictated somewhat by how spread out the communities are in, in that region, which is you know, generally they're they're fairly <laughs> far apart and fairly remote. Mm. Uh, I remember reading that uh, you uh, you wrote that Pat is a climber, a mountain climber. Yeah, we both are. Okay, mm-hmm. both of you. Yeah, and um, you know, I'm, I'm a climber climber as well. And the one thing that's putting me off from doing any uh, big wall climbs is the idea of having to <laughs> carry up all of the food and. Uh, the portal ledges and all, all that stuff that's, you know, turning me off to that, to that prospect. And I imagine that uh, lugging around 60, 70 pounds of just stuff to live on and to make the trip successful is, is a uh, pretty, um, pretty burdensome, you know, in the proper sense. So uh, hats yeah, off, hats off was, to you for doing that. Oh, thanks. It was actually, we actually, we're going a lot like faster and lighter than we, we had most of our previous trips up to that point had been a lot more technical climbing and things that require, you know, a ton more gear. Mm-hmm. So in comparison to that, we, we were really streamlined, um, didn't carry anything, anything extra, you know, general, besides the mountain climbing portion where we're going over the coast range. It was yeah, pretty, pretty streamlined to just our basic needs on a, on a given day. Oh, well, good. Well, look, I want to want to respect your time here and uh, thanks for coming on to talk about this. And I want to just kind of wrap this up with a question. Uh, what's next? What's next for you? Yeah, well, um, I guess it depends on which aspect of my life, but hopefully what's next is we're going to be doing some more sailing this spring, um, possibly go into Glacier Bay and do kind of a sailing and ski trip. Um, and so that's what's next in terms of adventure. Uh, in terms of a writing project, I have a few things that I'm working on right now, including some adventures with kids and um, remote living. So we have a remote off the grid place where we try to spend a lot of the time. And so adventures related to that 
and then yeah, continuing my work as, as a biologist as well. Okay. Is that writing? Are those um, articles or do you envision those to be larger projects? Um, which articles? Uh, the, 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 the ideas that you spoke about writing, so travels with kids and off-the-grid living, are those articles or are they book projects? Probably a little bit of both. Okay. Yeah. So I'll probably, yeah, try to put together some shorter pieces and have a couple kind of in the works right now. And then I would like to take on another book project um, once the dust settles on, on this one as well. Yeah, well, I'll keep my ear to the ground and uh, see what you come up with next. And uh, look, I, I didn't want to talk about birds because <laughs> I know absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> um, but your book uh, does uh, deal with, um, you know, your, your your experience with birds and, of course, your knowledge of birds. So I think this is a is a book that would would appeal to um, a lot of adventure travelers, but also people um, with a kind of natural science uh, background or an interest uh, and it's a it's a good book and i'm 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 glad i read it and makes me want to go outside uh, but unfortunately <laughs> we don't have a lot of that here in central florida it's a suburban hellscape <laughs> as you can imagine well there's always there's always some little bit of wildness to find everywhere right yeah yeah well well thanks again for coming on and uh well i look forward to hearing more of your or reading more of your projects Great. Well, thank, yeah, thanks for nice to chat with you, and uh, yeah, best of luck with all of your ventures as well. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of All Over the Place. Please consider supporting the show if you find it valuable. You can do this by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite app, reviewing it, following me on social media, or by supporting the show directly via Patreon. Links can be found in the show notes and on alloverthepodcast.com. Thanks for your support and farewell. <laughs>